Hey, Kate. Yeah? Do we give legal advice on this podcast? Oh, gosh, no. Hostile work environment. Exactly. Hey, an appropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. Shut up. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hello, welcome to the Hostile Work Environment Podcast. My name is Mark Alifans. I am here with Kate Bishop. Bischoff, as always. Oh, God. I, how many times have I messed that up? This is the second. Awesome. That's, okay. That's the second time? That's awesome. Uh, it, just, it just rolls off the tongue, uh, right? Yep. Yep. Just ignore that C. You, you could say bitch off, too, you know, because we did that webinar. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm fine. I, you know, I kind of wish, you know, we had such nice weather here in Portland for, uh, you know, four or five days. But now the last week or so, we've been living up to our reputation as kind of the rainiest spot in the world. So uh, that's not actually a rainforest, you know, <laughs> uh, but it's been pretty rainy the last week. So I'm hoping to get a little bit of sun and warm weather here at some point. Well, but otherwise, it's great. Good. Well, Minneapolis is 71 and sunny today. So it's near perfect here. Jealous. <laughs> Makes sense. You're jealous. Yes. All right. Now that we've talked about the weather, uh, I think we wanted to mention to everybody that a week ago, so last Monday, uh, you and I did a webinar together on returning to work uh, in the COVID age and different uh, legal and practical considerations that employers should be looking at uh, in bringing employees back to work. Um, yeah. So I that that webinar is still up. We've put it up on our YouTube channel, just on the podcast YouTube channel. It's also on your website, which can be found at thrivelawconsulting.com. Yep, it has over like 700 views at this point in time. So I'm hoping that people are finding it really helpful. So we'll see. Great, that's awesome. Uh, so I hope that you will. If you haven't seen it, go tune in. I think it's worthwhile, uh, and we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, other than other than the, the, than the devastating you know, topic, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, piece of that. So uh, once that went away, it got it, it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. So, it was. So can we talk about the XFL? I would love to talk about the XFL. Before we get into this case, can you talk a little bit about what the XFL actually is? Well, the XFL is a pipe dream of the <laughs> WWE leader to compete with the NFL, where in the XFL, there will be no one knee during the national anthem, and there will be more hitting and more violence in the XFL. So two things that we are super into on this podcast. <laughs> It is right. a, it is, it is basically NFL hostile work environment. A, exactly. With a great deal of actual hostility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And exactly. when you tie it to wrestling, there's a literal tie to wrestling in that Vince McMahon, who, yeah. you know, is the head of what, WWF, WWE, I always WWE. get confused, yeah. um, is also the owner of the XFL. Yeah. Now, I didn't watch any of these games because that the season kind of the first season was halfway in when COVID hit. Are they doing like because I know they tried to do this years ago. Where, are they doing like trying to have like 
like dramatic story and plot lines like they do in wrestling where there's like they're like wrestling and acting are the players out there like like fighting with each other over like over women and yeah and other things or is it just straight up football yeah instead of having my last name on the back it says terminator or something like that yeah i i don't know i've never watched a game Okay. So I have no idea if there's plot lines, storylines, you know, maybe one team is the Russia team. Another team is the American team. I, I don't know. I'm kidding. Totally joking. Don't know what it's like, but there is a great deal of drama surrounding this. In yeah. fact, the XFL had hired Oliver Luck as its CEO to run the business. And it, Oliver Luck is the parent of my, if I watched football regularly my favorite quarterback Andrew Luck only because he tells defensive backs that they do a good job when they hit when they hit him I think that's hilarious and endearing yeah super classy Uh, they hired Mr. Luck to be in this role and as COVID hit he decided to go home to shelter at home in Indiana and the main office for XFL was in Connecticut So he goes home to Indianapolis, I believe, to shelter in place and take care of himself. And he does that on March 13th. On March 15th, because of COVID-19, the office of the XFL closes. And in the interim of those two days, Mr. Luck is texting, which happens to be Mr. McMahon's favorite mode of communication is texting things back and forth with him in the operation of the XFL. A couple of days later, the XFL declares chapter 11 bankruptcy because there are no more games. So there's no more revenue coming in from that game. Right. And there's such a young, the league just started up. So they don't have the backup funds that some of the other big leagues have to be able to ride this out for a lot longer. They don't have the big TV contracts. They don't have the big money. And they don't have kind of a nest egg kind of to keep mm-hmm. going. So that's not super surprising that a young league like that would fail um, quickly. so quickly. Right. Well, and it's chapter 11, so it's not entirely failed because, you know, we're going to reorg. Fair but enough. in the bankruptcy filing, the XFL does not list Mr. Luck as a creditor because they fired him. And he had a big contract with them. So technically, he could get damages, right? Well, he could get damages, or there might be a provision in that contract that says that if he if he's terminated for whatever reason, so long as it's not for cause, that he's owed a, a significant payout. Yes. And so Mr. Luck sues the XFL in the Federal District Court in Connecticut for damages. Now the complaint itself is super blacked out. There's a lot of privacy issues in it. So there's not a whole lot of meat to the actual complaint, but the response to the complaint is where I find this fascinating. So if he was terminated for cause, they might be able to get out of the separation requirement. Theoretically, they don't owe him anything. Exactly. And so Mr. McMahon comes up with three reasons for why he was fired. My favorite reason is that he was using the XFL's iPhone for personal use. Uh, huh. <laughs> I mean, uh, right. I don't know any CEO who is not using their company provided cell phone for personal use. That that is BS. That one's not uh, fine. And, and let, let's say, let's just say 
that that was a legit kind of, you know, not reason to fire somebody, but it's it, it, it goes against their policy because it mm -hmm. might. Wouldn't most contracts of this nature say you need to stop doing that thing and we'll give you 30 days to stop doing that thing and remedy right before we can call it for cause? Yeah, exactly. Right now, exactly. I, we haven't seen this contract. Maybe it's it doesn't have that. But this is not the sort of thing that usually rises to the level of a cause termination. <laughs> exactly. The second reason is a little bit more interesting. Um, Mr. Luck had hired or signed a player named Antonio Calloway from the University of Florida. Now, Antonio is not the squeaky clean kind of player that uh, Vince McMahon wanted in the first place. Mr. Calloway there had been accused of sexual assault, um, which eventually cleared, but there was a sexual assault problem. There was uh, some marijuana issues. And so because there were these kind of scandals, McMahon didn't want to hire him, but didn't know about these scandals before Callaway was signed. And in the first game, Callaway tore his ACL, a career-ending uh, injury. And had Luck terminated Callaway once he found out all of these things before the game, they wouldn't have had to pay for the surgery, wouldn't have to pay for damages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is an interesting, the timing of letting Callaway go is kind of interesting. The, However, Call this was Callaway's last chance to play football. And so he intended to really clean up his act and Luck and others consider this is a, a second chance for him to really improve and do better and be a good guy. So this is an interesting conundrum. What do you think of this one? Well, so I think, you know, McMahon says something to the effect of, I, I gave a general directive that we don't want to hire anybody who has a questionable background, mm -hmm. right? And in and of itself, that, I don't know how or if that is put into Luck's contract such that not doing that would constitute cause. <laughs> right. <laughs> Again, I'm coming back to cause. Like cause is generally like a, I committed fraud level of standard, yeah, right? Like or gross negligence or gross, gross insubordination. Yeah. Right. Yeah, really so, bad. So on its face, this just doesn't pass my cause smell test, you know? <laughs> uh -huh. And it's, it sounds like a bunch of BS to me. I'm just trying so, to, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine the attorney bringing you in as an expert witness. Does this pass your smell test, Mr. <laughs> let, me, let me smell that contract. Yes, awesome. Not cause. No, um, <laughs> yes. So, uh, well, and, and but it, but it raises another issue also mm -hmm. that I think is worthwhile for us to explore for a minute, which is what do we think about policies that say we don't want to hire anybody with a questionable background? Uh, we think those are have a disparate impact on individuals of color. And importantly, more important than what we think, that's what the EEOC thinks. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Right. Yes, and yes. and I have been in that situation where I I have had employees, clients that have been terminated based on a renewed background check that came up with something positive, even potentially felonious, right? <laughs> that we're like, oh no, we're not going to keep going forward because you've been convicted of some significant crime. Um, I, in this case, it was not felonious because otherwise they wouldn't have been working for us anymore because they'd be in jail. <laughs> But, uh, 
you know, somebody gets convicted of a crime that has something to do with, you know, mor you know, in the law, they say moral turpitude, right? So some, <laughs> some, you know, Favorite. ethical or theft, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and we got an EEOC charge over that. And it just seemed pretty like a pretty straightforward claim. And we can talk about this. And the EEOC came at us with all of their resources. Uh, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. And what was really happening is they were looking at making a test case out of disparate impact mm. when it comes to having automatic disqualifiers for having committed certain crimes. So you run that background check, right? Mm -hmm. And if you automatically disqualify somebody because they've committed a felony or certain kinds of um, crimes, then there is a potential disparate impact because racial minorities are incarcerated at higher rates and convicted at higher rates of those crimes. Mm -hmm. And so that, that societal discrimination then gets passed on to the workplace and the EEOC is looking to right that wrong somewhere in the process. So again, this, this isn't the exact situation here <laughs> with McMahon, but it opens up a really interesting subject that I'm sure we will devote more time to on a future podcast of you can't just have automatic blanket disqualifications based on criminal activity, right? This all comes back to ban the box kind of issues, right? Yep. And so, so what I advise clients on this front is don't ask that question until after there's a conditional hire, mm -hmm. right? You've made your offer, it's been accepted, then you run the background check. Right. And then you take each individual circumstance and apply it to the individual job. Right. And it's it may that, still be that it's disqualifying. Right. It's that case by case analysis and following the green factors the EOC wants you to look at. It's like, how close in time is this to starting work? How uh, relevant is this particular crime to what I'm doing? So, you know, embezzlement for an accounting position, that would be disqualifying and a okay. Right. <laughs> Right. So and so those kinds of green factors are the ones that come up about that. And for my clients, when we have a bad background check, we're like, OK, let's think. What is the job? What could this impact be, et cetera? And that's the kind of thing you need to do, even if you hire a lot for this position and you know that this crime for sure is always going to be a disqualifier. You can't have that policy. You have to do it individually each time. Absolutely so. right. Awesome. Okay, so now let's get to the third reason as to why Mr. McMahon fired Mr. Luck. And this is because Mr. Luck wasn't actually working. What? Mm -hmm. Well, remember in March, the poop hit the fan a bit in March. Remember what happened in March? Oh, God, what sort of big... <laughs> societal <laughs> generational impact event generational occurred. <laughs> impact um i mean they they canceled sports yeah they canceled <laughs> a lot of stuff uh so mr luck goes home to indianapolis because of stay-at-home orders in connecticut and then i believe eventually what? indiana i don't and the office closed closed yep and the office closed so mr mcmahon wanted butt in seat time so if he left two days before the office closed, he wasn't working because he wasn't there. What do you think of this one? I mean, this also does not pass my <laughs> for cause smell test. <laughs> um, right. 
I mean, first of all, everybody who had an office closure and then has to work from home, right? In this case, it could take a day or so or two yeah. for him just to get arrangements done and get back to Indianapolis. He may have had, you know, paid time that he could have done taken, or he was probably like most CEOs texting or emailing work stuff while he was getting ready to fly or drive back from Connecticut to Indiana. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of things that, again, I don't know specifically what was going on here, <laughs> but I have to believe that especially with the league on the, on the brink of collapse, right, games are canceled. The CEO is probably doing a heck of a lot of work, whether yep. he's in an office seat or not. And these are the sorts of jobs that for many CEOs around the country, you know, being in place in your office is not necessarily an everyday thing. Right. So they're all doing work out and about on the road, at their home, at their vacation home, wherever they happen <laughs> to be. Now, I don't know how the past practice for the XFL was working in that regard, but my guess is that this is a total BS reason. And A, luck was actually doing work and B, not being at the office does not constitute cause, cause. under this contract. Right. I mean, this is just kind of <laughs> like, this does not pass my my smell test. Smell test. Right. Well, and so Mr. Luck provides an affidavit in response to the response to his complaint um, and says, I was texting all the time with McMahon, which is his preferred method of communication. And I've got the text to prove that I was doing my job. So this third reason also kind of fails your official smell test. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see where this one shakes out. Yeah, where it shakes out. It, it's always fascinating to me when an employer has to conjure up reasons to support a termination um, that don't seem as readily apparent or don't pass these kinds right. of smell Especially tests. when there's a clear motive to do so. In yep. this case, Lux contract has a you know, a termination provision that includes a 20 to $25 million payout. Mm -hmm. So that does, does Vince McMahon want to pay that? Obviously not. Obviously. So he's come up with three very thin <laughs> reasons <laughs> for trying yeah. to put this under the for cause portion of the contract. And what, what's smart about that, even though it doesn't, we're laughing at it a bit. What's smart about yeah. it is probably the way this goes is they, they, they mediate this and come to mm -hmm. some number that's in between zero and 20 to 25 million. Right. And then it gets approved by a bankruptcy judge as part of the creditor's piece. And he might even get a haircut off of that because it's going to be in bankruptcy. So it's right. this is just an interesting COVID related term. So Agreed. what do you have for me? Sir? All right, well, I've got a I've got a middle segment today. We haven't always been mm -hmm. doing middle segments, but we got um, an email from someone going by Legal Eagle. Ooh, okay. That has a whole bunch of questions slash topics for us to talk about. And that's one of the things that we have put out there before, which is if you have topics or questions you want us to talk about, uh, feel free to email us at hwepodcast at gmail.com uh, with mm -hmm. those questions, circumstances that have come up that you'd like us to comment on without giving legal advice, um, and also your stories, which, again, are, are kind of bank of stories is running pretty <laughs> lean at the moment. Uh, again, I have a few, but I'd love to keep that. I'd love the, I'd love the pace of stories coming in to exceed the number of episodes that we produce. 
so. uh, understandable. So folks, please send them in. All right. So I'm going to kind of hit up uh, Legal Eagle's email here. And we've got three areas that I'm going to pick out of this email that I think are worthy of us to have a brief discussion about. Okay. Uh, the first one has to do with anonymous reporting. Often our HR cases that were anonymously reported did not proceed much farther than an investiga investigatory stage because it was often the uncorroborated word of an anonymous complainant against the word of the interrogated respondent. What more, if anything, should HR departments do in these situations where there's no other evidence than the anonymous complaint? Okay, so I feel like I need to get on my soapbox a bit for this one to start. That's why we have a podcast. <laughs> yes, woo! Comes ready-made with my soapbox. First of all, I understand the desire to want to have an anonymous reporting structure because maybe that provides people some more comfort so they feel more readily willing to share what's happening to them. Okay? So I get that. But there's How a policy reason behind that, that that does have some basis in in reality. Yeah. However, once you report something to me that if particular, if it's something egregious and misconduct that I really do need to investigate, I have to figure out who you are. So I'm going to dig as much as I can based upon the complaint. Um, I'm going to ask people questions, trying to identify where, where, at least what department this is happening in and who might be involved. I might not figure out who the actual complainant is, but I have an obligation under the law to take timely and appropriate action, which means I have to try to figure out who you are. So I think it gives, anonymous reporting gives a false sense of security to those people who report, I think. And for that reason, I find it to be BS. Right. Or it completely shackles the investigator and prevents them from actually being able to look into the complaint. Because if yep. they don't know who you are, and oftentimes complaints I've seen roll in are things like harassment in finance. Check it out. <laughs> Okay, well, and finance finance at that organization has a hundred people, right? What I'm going to start a wild goose chase and disrupt everybody's work so that I can try to figure out what maybe is being referred to here, right? And uh, so, and I, I can't follow up with the anonymous complainant to mm -hmm. ask for more detail or more questions. So, right, there's, there's a give and take here, which again, I understand the policy rationale behind wanting to have anonymity to prevent against retaliation, right? But if I can't ask that anonymous complainant for more detail about the complaint and can't follow up, right, then it takes, it, 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 it you know, it, it handcuffs me as the investigator yeah. from being able to do my job and to be effective. And how can I, right, my job is to, to find out what's going on in the least disruptive way possible for the organization, right? And I don't want to cause more drama than maybe it's worth and when I don't get information and I can't follow up on the information, you're going to get a bad investigation. Yep. Right. And that's why we need to figure out who you are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So in situations where I've gotten, it's been pretty anonymous where I, I have gotten the complaint. I need to figure out what's going on. I have in lots of cases been much more disruptive to that or that business unit, that organization, trying to figure out what's happening because that is their organization's requirement. So that's what I do in generally in those situations. Agreed. Agreed. But but there's only so much you can do. Yeah. 
Yep. All right. Moving on to the next question about the nexus between mental health and employee discipline. In your personal opinions, I'm glad that it's prefaced with that because it's not legal advice. It's just our personal <laughs> opinions, opinions because we're lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. where, where does one draw the line when workplace behavior is a symptom of mental illness? For example, at my friend's workplace, they had an employee who was stalking another employee, for example, constantly emailing them, messaging them on social media. I almost read that as massaging them. On social media? Whoa. Yes, but <laughs> messaging them on social media, calling, texting, etc., despite being blocked and told to stop multiple times, and the employee subsequently got a temporary restraining order, right? The employee was ultimately given the choice to resign or face termination, uh, but the employee then claimed that their behavior was a compulsive symptom of mental illness, i.e. severe anxiety or depression. Generally, when can or should an employer act to address behavior that is symptomatic of mental illness? Okay, so I was just watching the first episode of Trial by Media on Netflix, and it's fascinating. It's how the the media kind of spins trials and who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And in that, in the first episode, they talk about uh, does depression or anxiety then result in somebody shooting somebody? Is that a natural outcome? And the answer is no, that's not a natural outcome. And I think the same could be true for stalking, that that's not a natural outcome of my depression or anxiety. And so one, it may be unlawful, but two, I don't have to accommodate an issue where it relates to the safety of a particular employee. And third, even when the outcome of the mental condition still is in violation of your policies, then you can still take action. So for example, I don't have to accommodate your Tourette syndrome. If you, and I think the case involves a grocery store where the individual was a beggar and he kept swearing at everybody. I'm like, mm, yeah, I don't have to accommodate your swearing. So. Well, unless there is, is there some reasonable accommodation that allows you to do the job? <laughs> Maybe there's not. I need Often to, there's not. Right. I need to find the job that there's allows no accommodation, me to swear. Right? There's What's no accommodation that allows yeah. me to swear at my customers. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. Awesome. Now, that doesn't mean there's not some other position or place that that individual can go. But in that case, what I'd be looking for, too, is, is what was disclosed ahead of time as opposed to having to find out after the fact. So I've engaged in this bad behavior, and now I'm looking to be able to be absolved of my bad behavior because it was based on a disability. No, in this case, with the stalking, it would be, hey, I need you to understand as you hire me, after you, right? Like, I have a disability that involves mm -hmm. anxiety and depression, and here's the things I need to not engage in this behavior. And then you can engage in that interactive process. But for me, if, especially given the example from our listener, if if you have somebody who is potentially legitimately putting someone else's safety at risk, or more than that, even putting fear in them, yeah, I would much rather protect that employee, right, and save whatever risk there is there, and be a good employer and help that individual who is being being harassed or or being stalked, right over whatever risk I have of a lawsuit coming out of this, right? Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes you, you know, I've said this before with clients, 
we're buying a lawsuit here, but the alternative is even worse. Oh, for and, sure. And to be a good employer and a good citizen, like we need to protect our people. Even if this person has a disability, if that disability is presenting a threat to the safety of other employees, mm -hmm. to customers, to anybody who might walk in the door, case closed. I'd rather just, you know, I'll take the risk on the lawsuit. Yep, absolutely. Totally agree. Okay. All right. Last question. Uh, the disconnect, this is the topic is the disconnect in states where recreational marijuana use is legalized, but employment laws have not been enacted to protect such use from adverse employment action. Specifically, uh, the question is, I assume that eventually in New York, I think this person's located in New York, we're going to have legalized recreational marijuana mm -hmm. here in New York. Yes, in New York. State labor law section 201D is essentially our permissible activities law. Protecting, yeah. among other things, smoking, drinking alcohol, and certain political activities. That being said, what do you see as being the extent, if any, of legal or other obstacles preventing employers from taking adverse action against employees for such use? Okay, so let's stick to recreational as opposed to medicinal, because there are a bunch of states with statutes that protect the medicinal user. So for recreational users only, those kinds of lawful consumable uh, or lawful activities post-work are maybe things that protect them. So for example, Colorado has a lawful off-premises activity, which arguably could protect the recreational user if they were only using marijuana off of work premises. They didn't come high and they didn't have the weed with them at work. So theoretically, that could be the post. However, that said, Colorado also has the very famous case involving Direct TV, in which, or no, Dish Network, sorry, Dish Network, Dish Network, where they had a, I believe he's a paraplegic customer service rep who was using medicinal marijuana. He fails a random test and they fire him. And he's like, no, I was able to take this medicinally. And the Colorado Supreme Court says, employers get to say, you don't, we don't want this at all in our workplace. And so there's some give and take there, but I think the lawful consumables uh, acts are going to protect off-premises, off-work use, I think. I think that's true for the most part. I mean, it's a super interesting area in particular because on a federal level, even though it's not being enforced, this is still a schedule one drug. It's totally mm -hmm. illegal. So the fact that states have then decriminalized or legalized on a state level puts this weird interaction between state and federal law on this question where, okay, so the state says it's okay to have, so here in Oregon, right, we're like pot mm -hmm. central, right? So like there's like, I, you know, on my drive into, you know, into town, I think I pass five dispensaries <laughs> um, and they have the coolest names, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, electric, electric lettuce is my favorite. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> right. There's also la, la canna sur, like cannabis, oh, but it's connoisseur. So it's very nice. fancy in French. Um, so, you know, I think that there has been an argument, there have been arguments advanced that say, even if the state has legalized it on a state level and there's recreational pot everywhere, if I don't want this anywhere near my workplace, I can still fall back on the fact that federal law says this is a crime and that's that. I right. think that that, go ahead. 
there's there's a fascinating case out of Connecticut where um, the the employer, some kind of shipping company, and the person's the plaintiff's name has a whole bunch of I want to say it's Nofsinger, but has a whole bunch of consonants in it. It's hard to say. Um, but this shipping company said, well, I'm a federal contractor, so I have to have a drug-free workplace under the Drug-Free Workplaces Act. And they tried to say that their compliance with the Drug-Free Workplace Act means that we have to do testing. And a Connecticut federal judge said, well, that's not true because the Drug-Free Workplace Act does not require you to do testing. And because it doesn't require you to do testing, you can't say, I'm trying to comply with this law by testing and I'm going to fire this person because they failed the test. So I, there's definitely be a lot more law about this. Um, there's it's a possibility that if 2020 goes a particularly blue way, we might have legalized marijuana by the end of the four-year term. Um, I expect that a lot more states are going to legalize recreational uh, marijuana. And my favorite anecdote about this is I had the pleasure of driving <laughs> to Bismarck, North Dakota, um, Western North Dakota, gorgeous. Eastern North Dakota, boring. Okay. But on that drive, there was a company that advertised on a billboard that says, we don't test for marijuana, apply here. <laughs> and they were using the fact that they're going to not terminate you or not refuse to hire you for marijuana use because that is their recruiting tool. Like they know that if they say we're not fascinating, right? Right. I think it's absolutely yeah. fascinating. So I think there's there's lots more discussion and law changes here. Yeah, and you know, in the end, regardless of of you know, I I think that federal law argument is falling out of favor. It's gonna it's gonna go by the wayside, especially if yeah. there's a blue result in November. There, there's a more likely chance of that. But in the end, you know. I would treat it the same way I treat alcohol, right? So yeah, like in New York, their permissible activities law says that drinking alcohol is okay and you can't fire somebody for drinking alcohol off premises. But if you show up to work drunk, that law is not going to protect you. <laughs> exactly. Right? If exactly. you show up to work high, it's not going to protect you either. Yeah. I right? think Yeah, I think that's where we're going to get to is that we're going to have to train managers on what high looks like. Um, it's right. going to be more than just Matthew McConaughey and Cheech and Chong movies, um, but it is going to, we're going to have to show them what, not show, but teach them as to what high looks like so that they can say, I don't think this person should be here today. They're a safety risk to themselves, but I think that's where we're eventually right. going to end up. And there is an added complication with pot relative to alcohol, which is somebody shows up to work and you think they're drunk, you can test them and find out immediately if they have a blood alcohol content, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that shows some immediacy in terms of the, the, the drunkenness, mm -hmm. right? For pot, the testing's not there to get that immediate, right? So if you, if, you, if you smoke pot two weeks ago, there could still be some amount of it in your bloodstream that you'll test positive for, which doesn't mean you're under the influence of it at the moment. Nope. Right? Those and in of the us, end, yeah. if somebody's... Those of us who have higher fat content store it a little longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so, you know, in terms of, of, it's a little bit of a, of a tighter, you know, needle to thread on that, which is how do you prove the person's actually high? Right. Mm -hmm. And I could argue if somebody is acting high 
and they've they've got bloodshot eyes and they've got other stumbling you know, telltale right mm-hmm. symptoms they, you know they're they're constantly going to the snack machine um <laughs> you know and then you test them and they have some in some in their blood content you can't prove that it's actually active from right now but those the combination of those things is probably enough to justify some action right it, in Particularly in Minnesota, we have one of the most stringent drug testing statutes in the country because we require people to offer individuals who fail the test or test positive that they get to go to rehab before we fire them. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of hoops to jump through if we're going to do testing. And my response to a client who goes, well, they're stumbling, they're bloodshot eyes, their speech is all slurred. I'm like, well, then they're not ready to work and they're being unprofessional. There's no mm-hmm. reason to send them for testing if we have all of these additional administrative hoops to jump through when we can rely on, you're not ready to work, you're a, a risk to others because of your lack of coordination, et cetera. So that's where I generally come up with. I'm not a, a love of test. So. But on a broader level, <laughs> this is going to be a fascinating area of the law to see develop. It has been developing for the last five or 10 years. It will continue to develop, especially as we see more liberalized state laws and potentially federal laws around marijuana use. Yes. And if you have CDL drivers, ignore everything we just said. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yep. So. All right. Thank you, Legal Eagle, for those questions. If you have questions, send them to us, uh, hwepodcast at gmail.com. That was. I thought that was really good. And those are yeah. some subjects that we haven't spent a lot of time on on the podcast before. So please, please send us your questions. Okay, I'm going to finish this up with a quick listener story. Yes. I'm going to deplete our small bank by one. <laughs> send in your stories, people. Make Mark happy. Hi, Mark. Glad things are going well with the podcast. Not sure if this is what you're looking for in terms of examples, but I previously handled a hostile work environment case that was completely due to cultural confusion. That is exactly what we're looking for. Yes! I had two employees and a major conflict. One employee was from India, let's call her Jaya, and a U.S.-born white employee I'll call Karen. (laughs) Sweet. At least it's not India-Pakistan. I like it. Okay. Right. These women were initially very good friends and long-term co-workers. Jaya came to me fuming because Karen had told her she was happy that Jaya had been diagnosed with an illness slash disease. Jaya was crying, asking who would say that to a friend. On top of that, Karen had recently thrown Jaya a bridal shower and had used white flowers and white balloons. Apparently, in Indian culture, white is the color that widows wear. Jaya was convinced her friend was out to get her and wanted her terminated immediately for hostile work environment, specifically for religious and medical intimidation. Okay. Uh, uh, Okay. Yeah. After calling Karen to my office to hear her side of things, she was shocked and saddened to hear how upset Jaya was. She told me that she was happy Jaya got diagnosed so she could finally start treating the symptoms that had been ailing her. Oh. Right? Okay. Yeah. So it's not, I get that, right? So, yeah. Yeah. You know, you have somebody who's been complaining to you about feeling unwell 
over and over, over again. And again. you're like, why don't you go to the doctor? And they go to the doctor and they get diagnosed. Well, I'm so happy you got that diagnosis. Not because I want you to be sick, right. but because finally you have a treatment plan. You have a way to... Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. As for the bridal shower, she had no idea that white was a negative color for Indian brides and had associated white with weddings because that's common in the United States. I did my okay. best to, to mediate the situation and had both employees in a conference room with me. Karen was apologetic, but Jaya was convinced she wasn't being sincere. Ultimately, I told Jaya that we weren't going to terminate Karen, but that we would send her to cultural sensitivity training, which we did. Thankfully, they didn't work on the same team, so we moved their desks and informed them that they would need to maintain a professional working relationship with each other. Yep. Jaya ended up resigning six months later. After she got married, she moved back to India. It was an eye-opening investigation to me and a lesson in how serious cultural differences can affect relationships. Great story. Great story. Uh, and and I well think, handled. Yeah, I think it was really well handled. Like, I... I'm always excited to learn about new things about other cultures because I I knew the white thing about Indian brides that it's red, it's gold, etc. Um so I knew that, but I if I didn't, I would feel really bad if I threw what I thought was a beautiful shower with beautiful calla lilies and white roses and stuff and then it all of a sudden be somebody took that badly. I think I would feel really badly. I think I would feel bad for Karen in this particular case when I don't necessarily feel bad for Karen's very often. Karen's justifications were not entirely unreasonable here. Uh, no. You know, I, I think there's, you know, especially on the illness piece, there's some poor word choices, but once explained, it totally makes sense. And I could see myself making the same mistake. Yeah. And as you know, when we're doing training about respectful workplaces, we often talk about purpose and intent, where I can intend to make you feel bad based upon your protected class status, or the result of it is making you feel bad about it. Here, Karen doesn't have any intent to do it. The result was this. And so we still have to deal with the result, taking to, into note that she was trying to be, do the right thing and be kind to her friend, but the result of it was this. So we still have to take some kind of action. And this certainly does not rise to the level of a hostile work environment no. under pretty much any definition that I can think of. Right, right. And I hope Jaya left to move back to India and not that she thought the workplace continued to be hostile. So, I, One would hope, but who knows? Thank you, listener, for that story. Uh, I'm not going to beg you again. You know, <laughs> you know what I would say, so just do it. Yep. Kate, where can people reach you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me at thrivelawconsulting.com or K-8-B-I-S-C-H on the Twitters. How about you? My, where can we find you? For myself on the Twitter at Salad Pants. And you can find me online on LinkedIn as well and at alifanslaw.com. You know, I might just go get rhubarb shorts or rutabaga Rutabaga pants. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Pants in it. Right. no, no. Rutabaga culottes might be my <laughs> might be my new handle just to troll you. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like it. Now that you've said that though, I'll know who it is. <laughs> That's true. Someone someone go out there and do it. Do it. 
<laughs> All right, Have everyone. a good week, everybody. All right. We'll be back in two weeks, if not before. Bye. Okay. We're converting. <laughs>